Hello, I'm Juliette Littman. And I am Joe House. Welcome to Ringer Food, the Ringer's new hub for all your food-related content. You may have known this feed as House of Carbs, and don't worry, that's not totally going away. We will be launching two new shows on the feed, and the first is Food News with me and David Jacoby. You may remember us from our days at Grantland. Well, Jacoby and I are back to go over the news, sample snacks, share some personal tales of food news, some global tales of food news. Who knows what else is to come? And House, what are you going to be doing? Oh, my taste buds, my hungry homies, my culinary comrades. We are back. We've done it. Here to tell you that we are reigniting House of Carbs with a whole new slate of tasty episodes throughout the year. We are starting with a football fracas, a gridiron gobble fest. We're doing NFL playoff potluck featuring taste tests of the iconic food item or items of every playoff city to determine which city reigns supreme. Ringer Food is starting up this Wednesday, January 12th. That's so soon. So be sure to subscribe on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, the only ghost face he acknowledges is the one that made Supreme clientele. It's Andy Greenwald! That was so kind. Thank you. What's up, Thank man? You, buddy. I didn't see you at the uh, 4 p.m. Scream 5 screen showing at the La Kenyatta Regal this weekend. I respect the hell out of you and your engagement with culture, first of all. Second, it was really good because I, I think I mentioned this on the podcast last week that my children made me swear a blood oath to them that I would never see the movie Scream. Why? And then I had a fun... because Did you, the did post, you talk about this? I'm not okay. sure if I did, but maybe I did. But the, the, the point is, I think I've mentioned to you that on the way to my older daughter's school, that seems to be like the... the, the um, oh, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The creepy corridor where all the billboards go up, you know, for the horror movies. And so every day on the way to school... Over the last five weeks, they've seen the poster for the new Scream film, number one at the box office this weekend. And finally, they were like, you have to promise us you will never see this movie. And I was like, this is the easiest deal I've ever made with you. And then I got to tell them, Uncle Chris went towards where their pediatric dentist's office is. But instead of getting some sealant put on their baby molars, he and his wife went to see a screening of Scream. And they looked at me 
Like I told them that I was, you know, that we, I was friends with Cruella DeVille. Like they were just stunned. Do you think I have I had my, my life. house privileges are, are now revoked to, no, to hang I, out? I have to admit that I think that they protest a little bit too much. Like I think that uh, it's it's creating a, a kind of a, a forbidden desire to actually one day sure. see these movies. Like, for example, and I, I'm sure this happens in your households all the time, listeners of The Watch, but I was speaking to my wife and made a passing reference to the popular Sony uh, uh, franchise Venom. And from the other room, from across the house last night, my four-year-old is like, are you talking about Venom? <laughs> are you talking about Venom? And I was like, uh, yes, yes, we are. And she, she said, we don't like that. And I was like, well, America disagrees with you. Like the two of them don't like it? Uh, Venom's disturbing. Uh, Really high recommend on Scream 5. I was, you know, a very poorly attended screening in the afternoon in suburban Los Angeles. That sounds Uh, good, though. Your boy enjoyed it with with an ice-cold Dos Equis. No free ads. What? (laughs) Yeah, but they they had beverages there. Uh, The wife had um, a lovely Prosecco. Um, <laughs> this sounds really classy. In a plastic cup and some popcorn. Shout and, out La uh, Yeah, Scream 5, directed by Radio Silence. And it was just like, you know, it's pretty much, I, I'm without giving anything away because it's very twisty. I would just say that it's very much in the vein of of uh, the Matrix sequel that just came out where it's like, huh, so we're making another movie. And that's like the text of the movie itself. But that's kind of par for the course for Scream. I know that you haven't seen any of them, but as early as the first one they're talking about like the tropes and cliches of a slasher movie and then the subsequent movies are all about the making of a like sort of horror franchise and what the rules are everything like that but i i really enjoyed it and it did quite well um considering everything that's going on out there i have one question about it um one thing i was interested to see about scream uh, this this version of it is that the, the old gang's back right like like the old gang's always back. They, Arquette they, and Courtney Cox. They, and they were in the Campbell. last one too. They were in four. Yeah. It, it, isn't it interesting? I would love to talk to either an actor of that generation or an agent, honestly, because I don't know if being associated with franchises used to be such a, not just even a badge of honor, but literally like a, a like tenure track position. Mm. You know what I mean? Like now, if you are in one of these things, you can always work, which is the... Reason, I mean, that's always been the, the most challenging part of, of, of being an actor, you know? And if you made a passing appearance in a Star Wars picture in the last 40 years, you'll work again. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, even the people who are like, I, I'm sure that if you if you sat down with John Boyega and Daisy Ridley, they'd probably be like, no, we're, we're good for right now, thanks. Yeah, yeah. But you know what, <laughs> you know what can change over time? The size of the paycheck you're being offered, like you can work again. That's Do kind of interesting. Do you think that uh, Tuscan Raider number three ever thought it would come back around like it is for him on Boba Fett? Put some respect on his name, okay? Because I feel like 40 years ago in Tunisia, that guy was just like, I need to know more about the cultural practices of my people here <laughs> right. on Tatooine. And one day society will agree with me. One day. One day society will agree with me. So today, Andy, we're going to go through a couple of things. One, I just wanted to burn through a couple of shows that I, I, I checked out over the weekend and kind of give some capsule reviews, you know, some burn after watching. And uh, we also have a really cool interview that I did with the Yellow Jackets creators, Ashley Lyle and Bart Nickerson. Uh, the season wrapped up on Sunday. And uh, you can check out all the like theories and sort of questions that we had. On the Prestige TV pod, I believe Mal and Joe did uh, the podcast for that. I can't wait to check that out. And there are a lot of like 
cliffhangers and twists in the last episode of Yellow Jackets. But this was mostly a conversation about like the inspiration and influences and the writing of it. And also the, the act of making a show kind of in a bubble in the first season that has clearly become something of a phenomenon and has all this sort of fan speculation and fan engagement. And I will say the Yellow Jackets Reddit board is actually pretty good. You know, like there are, there are like, it, it's in that pure moment of fandom and anything can happenness before they've decided that like they hate certain characters or certain, you know, certain things need to happen or the show is bad. That's, and it's just like really, really fun speculation and screenshotting and memes. So that's such a beautiful moment that reminds me of the early days of the CR heads Reddit for <laughs> before they started posting about like Sean and me. You know what I mean? But it was just purely like Chris thinks the sea is dope. Chris is great. Like that, you are Yellow Jacket season one. That's right. Um, so we have that interview coming up in the second half of the show. But the first, for first, before we get into like my uh, my channel flipping this weekend, uh, you know, <laughs> Station Eleven um, wrapped up last week. Obviously, we had our interview with Patrick Somerville, and I wanted to ask, you know, if you had anything kind of like lingering, any leftover notebook scribblings that you wanted to share with the listeners about the show. Well, I, I feel like we could. It's a sign of a great show, or at least a great show for us, that I feel like we could keep talking about it for weeks. There was so much to unpack. And even though we did devote a lot of time to a number of the episodes, or at least aspects of the episodes, there's still just a lot of stuff that we left on the table. But I feel like since, you know, anecdotally, I think some people are are behind or are catching up or are finally agreeing to to take the plunge. I don't think we should get into, a, into spoiler territory again or, yeah. or rehash our thoughts about the finale, which were really positive. But I did want to say... I have been pleased and intrigued to report um, that in my industry conversations in the last week, which I I know that sounds self-important or it sounds willfully vague, but whether it's general meetings with studios or follow-up calls with people that I, I'm Bellying up to the bar with. of Dantana's with... Exactly, yeah. I, <laughs> all the great talent managers. The thing is, especially during a pandemic, people like it when you just kind of hover and breathe down their neck at the ivy. And like we're dining outdoors, team. Um, it has been, it has dominated or at least made it, it's been mentioned in just about every conversation I've had. And it's kind of interesting when this is not representative of everyone, but when certain like decision making, um, the decision making class of the town takes interest in something new. And the response has been uniformly positive. And I will take it a step further to say it's not just been uniformly positive. It's been a little bit incredulous. Hmm. And I think that part is worth drilling down on. There was a, a text from someone who's a pretty high up producer, and he couldn't get over just how hard this must have been to pull off, like the sheer work that went into it and said it, 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 it's more meaningful and moving to him than any show in the last 10 years and all these things. And I think that my question is, and this is if, you know, if Grantland still existed and I was still writing those sorts of pieces, this would be the week where my column would be like, what are the lessons of this show? What are the takeaways of this show? And part of me wonders if, if the sort of incredulity and delight and optimism coming off of it wasn't just that, that Patrick and his writers stuck the landing or that it seems to be resonating with people on an emotional level, not just on the level of spectacle, which is a lot of what passes for uh, positive reception these days. It's that he and his team did seem to pull off what we often advocate for and what I think internally people want to do. They just don't really know how to do anymore, which is to create something that is 
emotional storytelling driven and is not dependent on, and it is dependent on pre-existing IP in that it was based on a novel, but that it is not enslaved to fan expectations or to a larger narrative about something that it somehow threaded the needle of being sticky, noisy enough. And these are the adjectives that annoy people in um, general development meetings, but are par for the course these days. It was sticky. It was noisy. It's about the end of the world. It's about a virus, God forbid. But that ultimately isn't why it succeeded. And it was yeah. also divorced from the, one of the other worrying trends of, of, of the moment, which is the not just the arms race in terms of spectacle or CGI, but in terms of stars. Sure. Right? That this was cast perfectly and brilliantly, but not in a way that you might expect uh, in any of the leading roles. And instead, what you have is this ensemble, where as maybe people heard in our conversation with Patrick, um, you know, we didn't even get a chance to name the people who now will be checking for in everything going forward, Danielle Deadweiler, Matilda Lawler, uh, David Wilmot, uh, Daniel Zavato, just fantastic actors that we weren't necessarily paying, Himish Patel, um, mm-hmm. we, that we weren't necessarily paying total attention to. So it's it's an interesting it's an interesting moment, and one made even more interesting by the fact that Patrick and his writers' room took massive liberties with a successful book, and seems to, and everyone seems very pleased with that. You know, isn't that it, the funniest part? It's like because like right now, I would say, you know, I, I have no idea what kind of ripple effect. And to be completely honest, I don't really have any idea what kind of quote unquote numbers uh, Station Eleven is putting up. And and you know, I can t- obviously tell anecdotally from. The, my friends who were talking to me about it, uh, that it means a lot to them. And that's kind of the thing that I hope winds up being the lesson. I was trying to think of shows like Station Eleven, and obviously people have referenced The Leftovers because of Patrick's pedigree, and beyond that, and the Lindelof tree of Lost and stuff like that. But it kind of also reminded me of the way uh, Friday Night Lights hit me mm. in, those, uh, in, the, in the first and third seasons. Uh, no disrespect to the second season, but you know what I mean. Um, I just liked the fact that it made me feel something, you know, because there's a lot of TV that you try to solve and there's a lot of TV that's a nightlight and there's a lot of TV that's interesting or maybe it's just kind of like really compelling because you're like, what the fuck is going to happen next week or next episode? And then there's something every once in a while like this that comes along and you're like, wow, I really just kind of like, there's a couple of nerve endings that I thought were dead here (laughs) that this show maybe shocked into uh revived you know and i felt i remember feeling that way a lot like friday night lights and sometimes with friday night lights you know to be completely honest you know and that was back i can't remember i believe i watched that as it was on but i that was one of those shows also that i feel like we got like the dvd of the first season and and would watch from time to time yes sometimes i would feel a little bit nervous to watch friday night lights because i was like i'm in too deep with these characters like, I don't want anything bad to happen to them, you know? And I, st- I obviously felt that way about the Station Eleven characters. It's just, you know, I hadn't read the book, so I had no idea what was in store for these people. And even if I did, obviously, Patrick took it in different directions. But it, it is a pretty... The alchemy that goes into, like, coming up with a show, it's like, I don't think that there's any playbook for that. But it is nice to remember that TV can do that to you. It's the, it's the thing we kept coming back to when we were trying to explain, by the way, a decision that I think looks great in retrospect, why we named, and we didn't talk about it ahead of time, but we both ended up in the same place, why we named it the best show of last year. Its ceiling was so much higher because we just didn't really understand what the building even was. You know, that so much of our contemporary viewing experience is an attempt to, by by the people in charge, to 
limit the parameters of what it might be so as to minimize the risk for themselves. You know, everything, the goal is for everything to be for as many people as possible, because if you lose a viewer, they have a million other choices at any moment, right? It's you're trying to sort of narrow cast people into a place where as many of them as possible can feel comfortable and won't be offended or, or won't feel like I don't understand this or this isn't for me. And often going to a place of sort of unpredictable emotion or surprise or discomfort, like that is a region where, look, we're, viewers often aren't comfortable, let alone harried development executives who are like, I'm not sure if I can wrap my head around this. I'm not sure what this means when I'm reading it on the page or when I'm seeing it in the dailies, right? But Patrick snuck one through. He got mm-hmm. one through. And it is working in its landing. And and to your first point, um, I think I uh I don't know. I, I'm we I think that 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 Casey Bloys of HBO and HBO Max is a is a loyal listener. We are not at the point where he is sharing inside subscriber data with us. Um, although feel free to to drop that into the DMs, Casey. Um my sense is that we are in this sort of post-Nielsen era where stickiness in conversation is is valuable, right? I think that all services, whether the numbers uh, are bearing this out or not, want a Station Eleven because they want to be in as many conversations as possible. They want to have as many reasons for you to subscribe to their service as possible, and they just want to be talked about. I mean, the worst thing... That can, and the worst thing that could happen is something that happens frequently now, which is it just the show just comes out mm-hmm. and then and then we're on to the next one. I, you know, John Landgraf and his team at FX every year, uh, it started as kind of a scold, and now it's just kind of a uh, Ron Burgundy looking at his dog who ate the wheel of cheese, like they're not even mad, they're just impressed. List of uh, how many scripted shows there were in America. I just I, we do need to just quickly briefly mention the fact that Justified is being revived. Oh, well, that that should go in. The, wait, we're coming back to that. Yes. Okay. I, I just, but just to say, there were like over 500 original scripted shows in this year alone. And so just to stand out for any reason is is noteworthy. I just feel like for me, the excitement of Station Eleven isn't just that it's not based on a comic book or Lord of the Rings or or something like that. It's also worth noting, it's not, it, it wasn't slavishly devoted to recreating a book experience. It would be a very, very, as you and I have learned since watching the show and getting into the book, it would have been a very, very different TV show mm-hmm. had it been. Not necessarily a bad one, but maybe not as transcendent as we found this one to be. And, you know, books have been fertile material for limited series recently. Um, but something, but I think they tend to be more like Little Fires Everywhere, Nine Perfect Strangers, which isn't to discredit those shows at all, which were successful in what they set out to do. But I do think that their goals were, we're going to bring what this was appealing about the book. This to life. Yeah. To life. And yeah. we're not just going to reimagine what it could mean in this medium. Um, and similarly, we're going to start seeing, like, and I'm pretty excited about this. Like the, the Pam and Tommy show looks like a hell of a lot of fun and it's mm-hmm. an amazing cast. But we are about to enter a, a pretty unprecedented time of uh Law, cue the Law and Order music, like rip from the headlines miniseries or things based on podcasts, you know, yeah. which is just another ex- attempt to kind of control the narrative and control the chaos and bring us things we already kind of know and feel comfortable with. And my hope is that um, in the next year, when when writers bring a favorite book or an idea that this is a lane, I don't even, wouldn't even know how to describe it, but I hope that this is a burgeoning lane for someone to sneak one through. Because those are still the ones we end up talking about. To bring it full circle, Chris, you, you're going to be talking about Yellow Jackets at the end of the podcast. 
Um, that was not an easy sell. No. You know, uh, I think it was years between when they wrote it and even when they shot the pilot and when they finally got the green light, all for them to be rapturously received and, and sort of have their vision borne out, right? That we're going to make a show that people want to talk about yeah. and talk about in a way that is true to what we care about and true to the show, not just because, oh, does, you know, Sebastian Stan really look like, 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 like Tommy. <laughs> and by the way, I, I don't know why I'm beating up on that show. I'm excited to see it. Um, no, it is right, true. So, I mean, like after, after watching, you know, Scream, which I, I, I had a great time watching and I thought was quite good and a, a really cool, you know, updating of, of the movie and, and, you know, Matrix and uh, obviously all the stuff that gets kind of, um, you know, scraping some, some new content out of this like sarcophagus of whatever franchise we're talking about. It's nice to see things like Yellow Jackets and Station Eleven succeed at least in our corner of the universe where it's like, oh, people do still crave new stories to some extent, even if they are variations on stories that we've been telling ourselves for however long. Yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. I, I think that there's still... Neither show reinvented the wheel, but it, they really stood out uh, in this year. Yeah. And um, I, I would also just say, um, just for a little extra extra textual stuff, um, there's a great, great, great piece by Katie Waldman in The New Yorker about Station Eleven that really speaks to um, what Patrick and his writers did, I think, in adapting something and what the show really prioritizes in a way that I thought was really beautifully expressed. And also... Uh, Patrick's interview in Rolling Stone or RollingStone.com. He does something that means a lot. He laid down a gauntlet, like he's using his platform really well to basically say episodes are the building block of television. They are never just, you know, way stations towards the larger 10-hour movie. That's cool. Uh, and and, And that's something that I think we didn't really even get into when we were talking about the season, but it was one of the things that made it feel so exciting and great, the way people were like, oh my God, episode five or Right, everybody was getting like, oh, the odd number ones are better. You know, like there was, people had like a relationship to to different episodes, you're right. So yeah, and if you haven't checked it out yet, it's time, it's time. We're not going to keep beating this Beating, beating you with the show, but man, it was really special. So this weekend, I went to go look for something else to check out. I wanted to get, uh, you know, we've been pretty immersed in Station Eleven between, you know, kind of reading up on the book, reading up on Hamlet, watching the show, thinking about the show a <laughs> reading lot. Reading up on Hamlet, yeah. Yeah, brother, you know, reading Harold Bloom's poem, Unlimited, you know, but uh, <laughs> wow. um, I wanted to find some new stuff to watch. I've, you know, we had talked about a couple of these shows. I just wanted to kind of give capsule reviews of, of all of them, but maybe you'll hear something here that you want to jump in on. I'm kind of excited for Ozark to be coming back. So that's sort of the next big one that I'm looking at. But, you know, I wanted to get in on Euphoria. I, I, I caught up with Euphoria after the first season, pretty much, and through the, the uh, sort of Christmas specials that they did, which I thought were really interesting and kind of cool executions of doing something at a time in between seasons and like to kind of expand on on certain characters. This season's, I, 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 I suppose it's like silly to just be like, yo, Euphoria is really fucking crazy. But the first episode of this season is just like, a Boogie Nights Goodfellas homage set at a New Year's Eve party that has a 15-minute sort of preamble about a character's grandmother and then is just like this super excessive drug orgy, almost thriller that kind of just looks like it's shot by like Ryan McGinley in early 2000s Vice. <laughs> you know, it's it's a, it's a pretty like, I think it's pretty bold and it's pretty cool how... Um, how euphoria euphoria is. They are just like, it's, it's neat to see a show that is so um, immersed in its own aesthetic 
and has such like a clear idea of what it's doing, even if what it's doing seems like so they do a lot of drugs. You know, like it's essentially a soap opera with a ton of drug use on top. Obviously, some more like important conversations and questions being raised by the show and being like proposed by the show. But like just visually, I was pretty, pretty impressed with what the what they were doing in the first season. I don't in, mean in this to first episode. Discredit what you're saying, because I think many people like you and other people that I trust and respect have a lot of time for the show and admire it. Part of me wants to create a, a Monday morning podcast segment where you describe the plot of a show and I guess if it's Euphoria or Righteous Gemstones. <laughs> because this is two weeks now where you've described, you're like, this is so wild. And it could be either. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I think Broad strokes. It would be cool if they existed in the same world and like they could have some crossover. Like maybe a character from Euphoria got saved by the Righteous Gemstones I Love that. Um, the other stuff I checked out this week in Archive 81, which is on Netflix and is based on a podcast has some Black Mirror Twilight Zone vibes, is essentially about um, a video restorer, like a, a like a, a guy who uh, works on like VHS tapes and, and Super 8 tapes or whatever, uh, who is called in to do a job on some tapes that are related to or were found in a New York City apartment building that burned down in the 90s. And he finds that he's able to like kind of piece together the story of what was going on in the apartment building from these from these video cassettes that he's been hired cool. to restore. Yeah, it's really it's really creepy. It's got a good sense of place. Um, speaking of of shows, you know, based on pods and stuff like that. This this was really really good. I hope to um, get get deeper into it. And then I'm halfway through Vigil, which I think is just exactly what the doctor ordered for me. Um, so Vigil, we've spoken about a little bit. It's on Peacock now. And it's uh, Saran Jones and Rose Leslie play detectives who are, are investigating a murder on a nuclear submarine, a, a new British nuclear submarine. One of them is on the submarine. The other one is sort of investigating on, on the streets of, of uh, Scotland. And it's like, let's put a, like a, a whodunit in an incredibly claustrophobic place and then add some, a few good men to it. It's really, really entertaining. It's really good. Brits just know how to make like a taut six-episode crime thriller. But they also know how to just like pre-program directly from your cerebral cortex. I mean, that <laughs> everything you're describing, yeah, it's pretty unreal. It's pretty know? dope when like, I mean, like every once in a while, if I find my, my attention drifting, they'll be like, we have to go up to periscope depth. And then when they get there, like a tanker is about to hit them. So they have to dive. And I'm just like, dive, Big D, dive. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> CR Mad Libs to make a show. Yeah. Is, would be such a successful exercise. We are like, okay, a... A blank taut murder mystery set on a what comes up? Oh, nuclear submarine. <laughs> but also they go to Glasgow. It's just like this is this isn't that hard. And they have figured this out. I'll I'll check this out. That sounds really yeah, good. Yeah, Vigil's really fun. Um, Gemstones continues to be good. Southside. I'm still did, finishing the second season. Chris, did you watch Landscapers? I watched the first episode. I started it too. I kind of dug it. Yeah, did you? I really did. I'm gonna finish it, then maybe we could we could check it out. But it was it's it, it, so people, this sort of, I, I don't know if this came across anyone's radar right around the holidays, but suddenly HBO is like, oh, by the way, we have a miniseries with Olivia, best actress winning uh, actor, uh, Olivia Coleman and David Thewlis, who is never not great. Yeah. But it just sort of appeared. And it's, and it's a, only four it's, episodes. It's only four episodes. It's based on a true story about an uh, sort of a surprising couple who also committed a murder. It's very stylized. Um, 
which I really liked. I mean, the actors, they're just incredible and worth watching, but it is so far, I found it to be a, a pretty worthwhile investment of time. Yeah, I'm, I, I thought it was really interesting. I sometimes don't go for those really like very black comedies, like the ones that feel like a little bit like not laughing at the characters because I think that there's like another element of landscapers where it's like, what's happening yeah. here? But I, 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 it was taking me a little bit of a while to get on the same tonal page with it. The, the thing about Thulis, who's kind of never not had a moment, but, you know, I guess whether it was beginning with... Um, Naked. Well, that's, yeah, that's when we first became aware of him. But I just mean recently in America, like Fargo season three, he was incredible in. And then... Yeah. Um, He's very good uh, in Kingdom of Heaven. <laughs> he, he, <laughs> speaking of CR Mad Libs, um, he was really good on our friend um, uh, Elwood's show, uh, Barkskins, that was mm-hmm. on Nat Geo. Um, He's very good in a uh, big mouth. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the thing about him, especially like as he has gotten older and in a show like landscapers, he's playing a very like uh, mild mannered kind of the world has kind of beaten him up fellow. Yeah. And you know what he reminds me of just as an actor? He's, he's, he's fairly unique, but uh, eagle eyed fans of the watch may have seen that over the weekend, I posted on Instagram, a link to a video by the rap performers, Mac Homie and big Chico did see that. Yeah. Song called spinoff, which I love. But one of my favorite things about it is that the video, it's like two minutes and 15 seconds. It's a pretty standard, like, you know, this era of rap video, because it's just dudes standing with some decent editing, but Mac Homie is holding a flamethrower <laughs> during the video. And you see Big Chico, his name is Big Chico. Be yeah. like, he knows he has one job to do. Well, he has two. One is lip sync his song. And two is not flinch yeah, when not the dude behind him. flamethrower, yeah. And one thing you learn about flamethrowers is that it's, I, as I learned from this video, they're not like playing Contra in the 80s. You're like, they're just not just inherently cool. It's a weird piece of machinery that has sure. like a lit thing. And sometimes flame shoots out, but it's not like a consistent thing, especially if you're making a low budget rap video. And I feel like that must be what it's like to act with David Thewlis in that, you know, he's holding a flamethrower, but you yeah. are not in control of when it's going to ignite. And I, I always find him interesting for that reason, because it's always there. And when it's in his pocket, you're just like, that guy's holding a flamethrower. I don't trust him. I don't <laughs> feel at ease in the scene in the best possible way. He's one of those people, too, where the IMDb game with him would just be amazing because you just forget that he's in Big Lebowski for a scene. You know, like yes. you, you forget well, that he has just been in everything. He's in all the Harry Potter movies, which yeah. I did not realize. But, you know, thus he 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 dines for free at my house. <laughs> unlike, um, unlike the cast of Scream, David Thewlis is welcome. No, he is. Or, or, or uh, yeah, or, or Venom, or Venom you know, right. which, is, which is not welcome. Um, let's just circle back quickly. FX is rebooting Justified. Yeah. And not just rebooting it. They were like, let's do another Elmore Leonard no, it's, novel. It's so. It, it's so. I good. just want to say how <laughs> deeply I appreciate this. First of all. I, I, you know, it's when you don't have a show like Justified. And I think to some extent, I feel this way about the Taylor Sheridan shows where I'm like, this is really like scratching a very deranged, but very good itch. And by the way, 1883 is really, really cool. Like, I I think you actually might like it if you could get past certain more like ponderous parts of it. There is a a very like, I think, hotly debated whether it's good or not uh, voiceover that's happening on the show, which is like the the sort of main the daughter is doing like a Terrence Malick voiceover. So like something really interesting has happened. She'll be like, we were in the, l- the land of no hope 
as we strayed oh. across the plains, you know, like, that just sounds like love life. Honestly. Yeah, but it's it's like it's happening in that, and that, that will take you out of it. But like the actual like, what if Lonesome Dove was even more fucked up? Is is pretty is a pretty cool show. Um, but I just miss a solid crime show that doesn't take itself entirely too seriously and has a super talented ensemble from top to bottom like Justify did. And the fact that they're just like, we're bringing it back. We're not going to like, it's not a movie. It's it, We're taking City Primeval, which is another Elmore Leonard book. I don't think Raylan's in City Primeval though, right? No. Right. And, but the sort of subtitle of City Primeval is High Noon in D- Detroit. So fucking yes. Like, let's get Raylan involved. And um, yeah, I can't wait. I mean, Raylan did some Miami stuff. Like he's, he's got, there's books with him in Miami um, he is in Miami a couple of times in Justified. The, the only books that he's in just devoted him until Elmer Leonard wrote a Raylan book Down in when the Justified hole, yeah. started. Well, that was the short story. Yeah. And then, but like he wrote a book called Raylan later. Oh, yeah, he wrote but, Raylan. That's right. Yeah. But his two novels that he's a character in, it's just so classic Elmer Leonard. He's just like, I'm going to write another book about Miami. And oh, I guess I'll have this like Kentucky lawman just be in it wearing a hat. And he's not even the main character of the first one. But Pronto is one. And, um, Forget the, I read them last month just for fun. It's writing, and, writing the rap, right? And writing the rap. Those are yeah. the two. Yeah, Pronto and writing the rap. And uh, it's, I, I don't know. If, there's. I was about to say, I don't know if we've said this before. There's never a bad time to reiterate this, that like there are, speaking of itches that need to be scratched, there's just, there's just sometimes you need Elmore Leonard. Like there mm-hmm. just aren't any other writers like him. And one of the best things about him is he wrote like 50 books. Yeah. So there's, invariably another one or it's been long enough that that you can reread some. Yeah. Yeah, And it's just pure pleasure. He's a brilliant constructor of sentences and of stories, but you could just, it's just so nice to have a book like that, like a pillow, not that it's going to put you to sleep. It's just going to make you feel better and take you away for a while. And we, that is a vibe that TV does not service very well. It's a great idea for them to just bring him back. I'm sure it works for Oliphant. It's nice that they're not, I, I have a feeling that this is going to be like a really good another Raylan story and not like a will we be touching on all the characters or whatever from Justified. I don't think it's going to be nostalgia driven. I think it's like we have another story we could tell with this guy. And I think that that's people taking advantage of this moment in TV. Like we just saw what well, we didn't see, but like the Dexter reboot, people seemed really thrilled with it and seemed happy to have their character back. And in a way that's restoring that character in the way that this is restoring Raylan to like, it's just a new book, right? There's a new book with this character and it doesn't need to be tied to a larger connected universe or expectations that there'll be one of 10 episodes of this every year. We could just do it again. And there's no reason why that can't continue to happen, especially with the goodwill of the, of the creators involved. And I think that. Dude, turn him into Columbo, man. (laughs) That's fine with me. (laughs) This also might be a conversation worth having in general, but like that sweet spot of like, I want, TV that just is a real comfort but isn't stupid mm-hmm. or that isn't reality TV or that isn't broadcast TV. It's just a little bit elevated. I mean, it, it, it's not necessarily a one-to-one comparison, but, you know, Chris, you've been, get, you've been getting a little shit recently for leaving one of our favorites industry off of your 22 uh, preview, you know, and it's been, it's been tough to see you take those hits, you know, <laughs> so I definitely don't want to bring that back up again. Is that happening a lot on the Andy Greenwald Reddit? <laughs> the Andy Greenwald Reddit is not for the faint of heart, or f- which means me. But um, but like that's the thing that we love about industry, which isn't to say that it isn't capable of like 
you know, stylistic, technical brilliance or emotional storytelling or whatever. It's that we were so excited to buckle in yeah. for a vibe. Yeah. And Justified is that too, man. That's uh, industry. My anticipation for, me, for industry is in a, a class by itself. Let's just put oh, it that so, way. So it's going to have its own podcast. Yeah, that's that right. Way. You left it um, off. Okay, good. Why don't we get into my interview with Ashley Lyle and Bart Nickerson? I thought it was a really cool conversation about the road of Yellow Jackets from page to screen and also the uh, this phenomenon of making TV when your show becomes a phenomenon. But obviously, there's also a lot of stuff about uh, the season and the season finale. I loved, I loved the season. Um, I will say that I, I think that the finale definitely seems to be setting it up for a multi-season run, which will be interesting to see people's tolerance for that. You know, like I think that fans usually are like, "Yes, can't wait," and then when shows emerge as like, "This one might be on for like five years," like that's where you start to get a little bit more chatter going on about like what they should and shouldn't do and, and how it should or shouldn't end. But I really love talking to Ashley and Barton. I loved Yellow Jackets this season. So uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll get back to my conversation with Ashley and Barton. Andy and I will be back on Thursday. And thanks to producer Kaya McMullen. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, Then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ashley and Bart, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this is running after the finale, so obviously people will have seen it by then. And I think it's been rare that I have seen such a feverish anticipation for a season finale. Um, <laughs> You know, Yellow Jackets kind of came out of nowhere in some ways. I think I, I was like, this looks like it was pulled out of my my wife's brain and put up on screen. And like since then, I think a lot of people have connected with it so deeply. But even as the creators, are you almost a little thrown off by the uh, the fan response, the audience response, like in terms of like how passionate it is? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. So wildly delighting us and um I think in equal measure terrifying us a little. Just in that, you know, I, I think it's always a little bit scary when you put something that that you've worked so hard on and that means so much to you out into the world to be sort of consumed but also judged by other people. So obviously the fact that people are connecting with it and are enjoying it is, is just absolutely warms our heart, but also it just <laughs> is going, oh my God, now we have to, you know, what if we disappoint everybody? So hopefully that hasn't been the case thus far and won't be the case moving forward. But yeah, it's just been, um, you, you know, you dare to dream of, of having people watch and, and be this excited about the thing that you are this excited about. So um, it's been fantastic. 
Yeah. I mean, like it is so hard to guess at what uh, kind of the reception would be. And then like, I think especially for a television show, because on a certain level it gets made so quickly and there's so much coming at you and there's like, you know, you have this hope that it's going to be great, but you're also like, I just hope it's not terrible. Like, right. because it's like, it's so like so many like moving pieces that have to come together to make something good, uh, let alone something like that, like really uh, kind of excites people that there is uh, a kind of an alchemy to it. Um, and so to see this uh, kind of reaction um, has been incredible. And I would imagine for first seasons, it's it's a very unique experience because this is something that obviously you poured yourselves into. You're doing it in this bubble. And then that bubble gets pierced by, I don't know, I wouldn't say the influence, but like the interpretation of, of people watching it. And this is a show that I think right now is at its like, it's it's at that perfect moment where people are obsessed with it. And like, I actually really... I have mixed emotions about certain like Reddit communities, but the Reddit around Yellow Jackets, like the way people have been like theorizing, I, is the scrutiny on certain like details of things intense? Is it what you had hoped for? Is it? I mean, like it's like this now is out in the world, so I mean we can talk about future the future of Yellow Jackets in a bit. But I'm curious about what it's like having this thing be in this bubble for a while, and now and now it's like oh, it's under this microscope. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because we we've worked on on shows in the past where where that was true and then shows where that was absolutely not true. You know, we kind of came up our first job was on The Originals and that was a show where where there was a really passionate fandom and they would, you know, at times pick apart details and really theorize about what was happening and there was a lot of shipping going on and things of that nature. And then we worked on Narcos where like no one is screenshotting Narcos. <laughs> I actually, I, I've screenshotted Narcos, but that's okay. <laughs> I am corrected. I stand corrected. Um, I am the young teenage girl for Narcos. <laughs> Shipping wow. characters, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I just, yeah, I like. I just really hope this like a merger works out. I, think that That's this, right. like, <laughs> I really hope Cali, you know, like Cali and and Mexico, they just need to come together. Shipping Cali, yeah, it, that's incredible. Um, but yeah, you know, so on the one hand, there's a you know there's a, a little bit of a, a vague awareness as writers and as TV writers that, you know, there's always the potential for things to be screenshotted. People might pay attention to details, but you never really know. And like you said, you're really working in a vacuum on a first season. So, you know, I, I would say that we, we proceeded accordingly, but didn't necessarily on any level anticipate just the, the extreme kind of microscope that certain fans are putting on every, every little detail so, you know, it's interesting because some things are, you know, we, we very much are deliberate and, um, you know, every single thing, I think what you don't realize going into making your own show is that like every single thing that's on screen has, has likely been discussed to mm -hmm. some extent or another and discussed at length. You know, we, we will have entire email chains about a bumper sticker or a poster on the wall yeah. or the Manny doll that, that Sammy has, you know, went through a dozen iterations and we're moving the eyebrows around by, you know, several millimeters to change the expression. So there is an intense level of detail, but because of that, you know, there are certain things that are just because we like them or because we thought it was funny. And then there are things that are, you know, pertinent to the plot. And so it's interesting watching people, you know, parse through the world of the show and, um, 
it's been very, you know, it's, it's been very fun for us to see how people are doing that. Bart, do you think that, um, you know, I, I was, we've had a couple of different showrunners for different shows on, on the pod over the course of the year. And one thing that I think that maybe, maybe it's a function of people spending more time uh, in, in, in their houses, on their computers and thinking a little bit differently about popular culture or art. But do you think that that impulse to like solve a story is uh, one that you would kind of reckon with when you were going through the writing of it? Did you anticipate that people would be sort of like trying to maybe be ahead of where the show is in terms of like, I want to figure out who's, who's wearing this mask at this point in the show or what happened to Travis or what, like that, that they would be trying to race ahead of the narrative essentially. Yeah, no, I mean, like uh, it's definitely a thing that we think about because, you know, it de- like, it does seem like with a mystery or like our show's not really like a puzzle show, but like a show that has a component where you can guess the next step, you know, there is a sort of, um, there aren't sort of hard and fast rules, but there does seem to be a sort of sweet spot that you want to uh, kind of arrive at where there are enough clues so that the final uh, kind of answer when you look back makes total coherent sense. But you don't want it to be so kind of obvious that it is, you know, it somehow spoils the viewing kind of experience. And so like, I think that was like a big thing that we sort of like think about is the sort of like too obvious versus too uh, kind of obscure. Because like you really, you know, like for like if someone uh, guesses the right uh, kind of answer, uh, when that is kind of revealed to be true, like for me, like that is one of the most pleasurable uh, kind of experiences. You know, like when you get, you know, first in your friend group who uh, Kaiser Soze is and then it's proven that you are right. Like that's a great movie experience for you. But you also, again, like don't want it to be so obvious that it almost becomes pointless to watch the rest of the thing because like, you know who it's going to be. And it's also really unsatisfying when like the final kind of answer comes out of left field. And it's like, wait, like uh, we didn't even meet this character or like uh, know who they were. And so that's the kind of sweet spot that we um, have sort of like thought through. I like, again, you know, just, I don't know that we were completely prepared for people to screenshot the subtitles from the closed captioning. Right. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we're like sort of like uh, thinking about it in that like fourth and fifth dimension level. But like, I guess I, I, I would also say in terms of a lot of that stuff, I guess I have this, um, I, I, I don't know if you call it like an aspiration or like a theory, but that there is a, a meaning in the sort of uh, synchronicities and the sort of like a kind of accidents. It might not like necessarily like figure in like a big way to the plot, but that there is like um, a depth and a value in like a close uh, a kind of reading like that. Yeah. I mean, there's almost like people are deriving like subconscious messages from, from the show even, which, which is actually like probably pretty exciting. I, I think the, the, the thing I was thinking of is I remember earlier in the year, uh, there was like a poster for the new season of Succession, and there was just like you know three people on one side and three people on the other side of a hotel of a, a hallway, and everybody was like, "What does this mean? This means that this is going to happen." And I was like, "It could just be like a promo poster for Succession with all the characters in a hallway." I don't, I don't know. Um, I wanted to ask to start a little bit with the finale specifically. Um, it answered a bunch of questions. It asked a bunch of new questions. Some some divinals was played. You know, like we were we got everything we wanted, but. I have always felt like, you know, and especially in this contemporary age that you you can sort of see sometimes when a show is like, 
we've kind of emptied the whiteboard. Like every idea that we had, every everything that we wanted to say, we we made sure we put it in this first season because who knows if this is limited or if it's going to come back or whatever. And yeah, I felt like in the finale, I was in the hands of two masters, honestly. Like I was like, you guys know exactly <laughs> what to show, but also set up like a path forward for this show. And I was curious about what the whiteboard looks like now without getting into the specifics of what's on there. But how much do you save? How much goes in? How much do you already know about like what, what going forward, Ashley? Well, I will say that for better, for worse, Bart and I are both sort of A students or, or um, aspiring A students. And I know even earlier in our career, when we would pitch things, the first thing that we would hear in response was, well, that was thorough, which is <laughs> necessarily a good thing. Um, but, you know, we, we like to know where we're going. You know, we are planners and um, we need that to feel confident in what we're doing. Um, so we're not, we're not the people necessarily who find it on the page all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, when we pitched the show originally, we pitched a multi-season arc and we knew that, you know, there's always an inherent risk to that because as you said, you can, you know, the show can fail. You can, you can not get picked up for a season two, and then you're running the risk of leaving the people who do watch hanging. So we wanted to kind of play a little bit of a balance in the same way that, you know, Bart was talking about the balance of, of when you give the answers and making sure that it's neither too um, obvious or too obscure. We wanted to answer enough questions that we felt like no one would feel completely betrayed. Um, but we, we, had to, you know, have a certain amount of, I don't know, confidence in ourselves or in our partners at Showtime, um, that we could keep telling this story Mm -hmm. and and operate accordingly. And so, yeah, I mean, we have for sure a plan moving forward, but the great part about television as well is that it is so collaborative. You know, we have a, a room full of incredibly talented writers and they're bringing their own ideas to the table on top of what we had sort of preconceived of when we first came up with and developed the idea. So, you know, our, our goal is always to, you know, have a plan so that we have a a direction that we're heading in and it feels like it makes sense to us and it's coherent to us, but to be flexible enough that if a better idea comes along or a, a change to that idea that really excites us come along that, that we don't become so beholden to that plan that we're, um, essentially robbing ourselves of the opportunity to tell an even more interesting story. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and like, I think a big part of our process and uh, like the same kind of goes for um, our show running partner, uh, Jonathan Lisco and like the writing staff that we've kind of assembled, you know, is we sort of like try to follow our own uh, kind of excitement. And when you're trying to decide between sort of like story ideas or uh, conceptual uh, kind of directions, like, it seems like oftentimes a great uh, like a way to decide is like which choice gives you uh, the energy to like see it all the way through. And so if you're sort of like uh, breaking towards your own uh, kind of excitement, it's like part of that uh, kind of excitement is sort of all the other ideas that are contained in that path so that it's like choices then don't sort of take off the board. They sort of add to the board, you know, like yeah. at least for a while until the story is done. But so... I think that's also uh, maybe part of why we've always been uh, so uh, thorough um, is because, you know, as we go, we get very excited and there's always the first pass of our pitches 
that's are just too long because like, uh, all we want to share all the stuff that we've come up with. I was reading an interview with uh, Melanie Linsky and she was talking about how she asked you guys what actually happens to Shauna because she needed something to act out that wasn't, you know, she's stressed out or she's traumatized or she, but, but you know, she needed to know specifically, but one of the miracles of the, especially the present tense band of the storytelling is that the characters are having these very plausible conversations with one another without ever actually giving any of that away. And I was curious about how incredibly hard that figure skating routine must be where they're going to talk to each other at diners and they're going to have, you know, mildly cryptic conversations about what may have transpired in the woods when they were kids that we haven't seen yet without tipping their hand. Like how many like drafts of like a, conversation between Thaisa and 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 Shauna must happen before you're like that's the the right tone but without tipping our hand too much you know what's kind of funny is like and Ash like uh, you might have different experience of this but I feel like you know coming from our other jobs where like oftentimes you have to do a kind of the opposite where like you're sort of like having people having to have characters uh, uh, restate like backstory pieces that they both know that wouldn't come up sort of kind of organically. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm in conversation so that like, you know, like I guess to our eye, if you take a look at the way that people talk, it's like the more shared experience you have, the less would actually come out, you know, in like the actual text say, you know? And so it was a lot of room work to uh, figure out, you know, the backstory of what they're talking about. But then in terms of the actual, like, words on kind of the page, like, I, I don't want to say it came easy because uh, a writing is always very hard and uh, feels like a slog. But um, like, we didn't have to go the extra step of like uh, figuring out how to make a lot of uh, kind of exposition feel uh, kind of organic. Sure. Yeah, I was gonna say pretty much the exact same thing, which is I, I think that why exposition gets sort of a bad name in film and television is, is that it is a little unnatural when, when people are saying things that they already know, or that the other character already knows, and you have to put that out there so that the audience understands what's going on. And in our case, it is sort of worked to our benefit that, that they wouldn't necessarily be explicitly stating and restating what they both know happened. And so, you know, it was almost having to do the opposite, which is, you know, figure out a way that we could say enough that people weren't kind of going, okay, you guys. And, and, you know, like what did happen? Although right. you know, there's sort of a joke within the show itself. I mean, we say it in the pilot, like what did happen? You know, <laughs> everyone wants to know. And so we're very aware that that was going to be what everyone wanted to know. But um, yeah, it was, it's, it's a little bit of a dance. And um, I think, you know, hopefully people, thought it worked. Yeah. I mean, I have so many like, so who's the guy in the doorway? Like questions that I just know you're not going to be able to answer. So what I'll ask more so is I, I, I really want to talk about um, the nineties because mm -hmm. uh, I also, I graduated high school in 95. And so I was, uh, and I'm from Philadelphia. So this sort of East coast kind of um, traveling sports teams like thing is, <laughs> is very much in my wheelhouse. I thought one of the things that the show captured really well is uh how activities like being on a team was like this great equalizer for different cliques in high school. And I was wondering if we could just talk a little bit about that era because I find that the show is incredibly um, accurate, but not like worshipful or overly nostalgic for that time period. Mm -hmm. And 
as you guys were talking about, like when we're going to set part of the show back then, and what are the qualities that people had in the mid '90s, kind of that maybe you didn't see represented on screen in other, you know, period pieces from that era. Again, there's not like a ton, and mm-hmm. then there's also obviously the stuff that we were watching, you know, Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino movies from that time period that were obviously super important to us, but like, I don't know necessarily that you would want to like overtly reference, like, you know what I mean? Like in the, the writing of the, so can you just talk to me about like kind of what it was like to write for that period? That's obviously very formative to, to, to all three of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, we both grew up in the nineties as well. I graduated high school in 98 and Bart, you were 97. 97. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's very much, you know, to some extent autobiographical in terms of just dealing with that time period. And for us, you know, we knew that we didn't want it to feel overly nostalgic. We wanted, you know, we had a lot of discussions with directors, you know, early on with Karin, when we were talking about the pilot, um, you know, we didn't want to put a filter on the nineties, you know, that's, that's often a trick when it's like a flashback and then there's Mm -hmm. a completely different visual look to a different time period And, you know, we said many times over in the room that we wanted it to feel like both of the timelines were happening in the present tense. If it was a novel, it definitely did. Yeah. In the present tense, because, you know, the the past is to some extent still very much alive for these characters. And so that really informed how we treated the 90s as well. We wanted to have it feel lived in as opposed to looked back upon. Um, That said, you know, we it was very important to us to get some of those details right, not just you know, for authenticity, but just to kind of delight ourselves. I mean, like I had a caboodle and I used sea breeze and (laughs) you can't, you can't even necessarily see it, but the, the scene outside the high school when Taisa and, um, and Shauna and Natalie are talking about the, the quote unquote alley problem. And, you know, we had like Capri Suns on the table, you know, behind them. Like we, we wanted to just, you know, to, to kind of entertain ourselves, like, live in that world that we grew up in. And so, yeah, I mean, that was pretty much our approach was to just treat it as though we were back there as opposed to kind of like reveling in the nineties of it all. Right. The disc man of it all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, I mean, like, because like, I think a lot of what like a period is because, you know, like, I think that's like a big sort of like part of the show, like, is like trying to feel through like what these things like mean. And like, I do think that a lot of that, that feeling and that like, like a kind of idea, like comes out of uh, kind of the details. And so like, I think like a lot of what we tried to get right was like a sense of place. And, you know, like we didn't want people to do uh, a kind of accents and stuff because I can be like a little kind of distracting, but there is a certain, like, I guess you would call it like a cadence or like a sensibility, just like a very uh, challenging quality, uh, I feel like, uh, to New Jersey that we tried to sort of at least like spiritually have played, uh, like just in the way that people uh, kind of related to each other. And I think that from that sort of like a level of like a detail and a specificity, this like larger feeling grows that we think like, I mean, like, I feel like even in a kind of the wilderness, there is a, a jerseyness somehow. Yeah. It feels very Pine Barrensy right, in some yeah. ways. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have some school trips that were much like the, the yellow jackets trips to uh, <laughs> uh, the, the woods. You know, I was, so you work with 
obviously current, but like uh, Eduardo directed the finale and uh, Daisy, who directed Party Girl, directs the ninth episode. And you're working with these directors. I know Girl Fights from 2000, but directors who have lineage back to that to that era, did they bring anything to you or have any insights about how they wanted to depict that era that they also were directing work back then? I mean, I think, you know, in particular, when you're when you're making a pilot, um, you're really setting the the tone and the look of the entire show. And so we had so many conversations early on with Karin. And, um, you know, we did talk a lot about indie films from the 90s, you know, that, that we had watched and, and were really formative for us. And, um, you know, that was definitely part of the conversation. And then, yeah, I mean, I completely just dorked out with Daisy and, and Ed. Um, I mean, just huge fans of their work. Party Girl, I, I think I have most of the dialogue of that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, falafel with hot sauce, uh, side order of baba ganoush and a seltzer. Like that's <laughs> will be indelible in my brain for the rest of my life. And obviously Blair Witch Project was just huge. I remember seeing it in theaters and, and not being able to, you know, turn the lights out that night. I saw it with my best friend and we did a sleepover afterwards. And like, we just <laughs> kept the lights oh on God. and watched them. Um, we had a, an old VHS of um, the 25th anniversary of Saturday Night Live. And that was always our palate cleanser when we watched a scary movie. Oh, wow. We put that on afterwards to like feel okay again. We're like, okay, okay, we can go to sleep now. Um, and so getting to work with them was just an absolute dream. And they were just so game and so collaborative to kind of come into our world and make this show with us and, and really kind of follow the, the template that, that Karn had set in the pilot. So it was just a, a really great experience working with everybody. I think um, we can, we can, I, you know, I understand you guys have to, to get going. I wanted to ask this one last thing that's sort of more of a, a 30,000 foot view question about the show itself, because one of my favorite scenes in the finale is when Shauna is dismembering a body and is having this conversation with Nat about kind of the tension between like, what if it's not a conspiracy? Like, what if there isn't this huge thing outside of us and maybe we're just all really fucked up from what happened to us out there and just like that's what happened to Travis and that you should just deal with that and then at the end of the episode now you can make the argument that Shauna knows very well that that's not exactly what's happening anyway but at the end of the episode we find out that there is this sort of greater thing happening to these people and that there are these outside influences and impacting the story I was curious what you know, whether or not that was like um, a central question for Yellow Jackets is whether or not, you know, your sort of life and the things that are happening to you are really just products of things that may have happened to you when you were a child versus like, no, no, there really is a, a monster in the dark. There's something under the bed. There's somebody outside the window or whatever. It's it's a really intoxicating idea. And I think it's one that's pretty potent right now. Do, what kind of conversations did you guys have about that? That, that scene and, and and also that idea. We had a lot of conversations and like um, a lot of different sort of like um, ways to approach it um, like in general. And that is very much like a central question of the show. Like uh, one of the things that we're sort of chiefly uh, kind of interested in is, you know, like the ways in which, you know, trauma can sort of create a lens by which you're seeing the world now and how that causes you to sort of kind of negotiate the things that come at you in like a, just like a very like different, uh, maybe distorted, uh, maybe more clear way. You know, like I think there is 
a way to view um, an aspect of trauma is that people that experience trauma make certain decisions about the way the world is and how to survive in it. And then when you are uh, kind of removed from those external uh, kind of influences, you know, you still have these uh, kind of instincts and ways of viewing the world. And so that like a big part of, you know, the problem can be when the world is no longer as uh, dangerous as it felt uh, at the time that you, that your brain and your body and your physiology like made these decisions, you know, you have things that aren't uh, functional and can actually be sort of uh, self-destructive. But there is, you know, in a way that your, again, like a body and mind and spirits, uh, like uh, kind of responses to these things that like are trying to protect you in a, like a weird way. You know, it's like a story I heard that could be a a kind of apocryphal, but uh, um, it makes the point of like uh, somebody having a kind of a heart attack and uh, the EMT is like not being able to get to this person, you know, to perform CPR or uh, save their life because the person is being protected by their dog, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, here are people that are trying to save you and your dog is also trying to save you, but it's just doing it in a way that's actually counter to your, you know, best uh, kind of interest. So like that was a huge part of the show and will continue to be because, you know, uh, we don't exactly know what the answer is. I, I mean, you know, like how, um, I guess like crazy would it be if we're like, look, we've solved the trauma puzzle for you. <laughs> right. Um, and we're gonna dole it out to you, you know, one episode per week for five years. <laughs> but but like you know, like so the show is very much a sort of we're trying to um explore um a lot of these ideas. I mean, I think that that ultimately the the best kind of drama is is when both interior threats and exterior threats. Are, are both at play. And so that, that was something that we really thought hard about and how to, how to balance those things and how to tell a story where not only are there both interior threats and exterior threats, but the fact that they both exist it, it can really throw our characters off, you know, off their, off balance, off their game. And, you know, there, there's a certain level of paranoia that we wanted our audience to be included in, in that experience, the paranoia, the, the way that, you know, you're looking at the world and thinking that everything could be a threat. Yeah. Um, and in certain cases that will, is very self-destructive and in other cases, as Bart points out, it, it serves you well. And so, you know, at, at the very end, we thought it, it could be very interesting to kind of explore that idea. And in particular in that scene, I love that you bring up that scene because, you know, there's, Obviously, Shauna is being a bit manipulative in that scene, but I think there's a, a kernel of truth there that she is asking herself. And I think in particular, she's thinking about Adam's death when she's talking about that, because really, you know, that was trauma kind of leading to really tragic consequences. Whereas to then flip the script at the end of the finale and say, oh, no, but wait, you were right, Natalie. Yeah, there is right. also an exterior threat. You know, in terms of just where we can go with the story from there, it just felt really exciting to us. Yeah, I mean, I it's it's pretty awesome to get to the end of a season of TV and really, like, the best feeling is, like, I need season two to start next week, so please get to work. Um, enjoy your victory lap, but then please get to work. Who sent you? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not an, an emissary of Showtime, I promise. Um, Ashley and Bart, thank you so much for joining me on The Watch today, and congratulations on the show. It's just thank It's you. just awesome so much for having us thanks yeah thank you so much it's so much fun yeah take care